It's so great to see you, Providence. I hope that you are well today. And to all of our guests, uh, welcome. We're thrilled that you've joined us. If uh, you uh, are here and uh, you absolutely uh, know the Lord, I pray that as you are here um, on this Sunday that uh, your hearts would really be encouraged. And if you don't, uh, our prayer is that God would, uh, just to help you see the significance of Christ, how, how, uh, how, how great he actually is and great what he's actually done. We're in a series, and so if you um, have, um, uh, um, in fact, uh, the, um, let's see, fourth chapter of uh, this amazing book called Ephesians, if you want to head there, if you uh, don't have one with you, um, there's lots of Bibles and all the chairs near you, and uh, and if you don't have one at home, please take that home as a gift. Uh, About 5.45 this morning, I woke up, I'm sorry, I woke up at 4.45. I was in my car at 5.45 on the way here, and I looked down at the screen. It said seven degrees, uh, and I was convinced that it was going to be a lonely morning, and it hasn't been. It's been so great to see so many of you, and so I'm so thankful for you. Uh, and what was really just fascinating to me is that uh, as I um, drove in just a few minutes after 6 o'clock, uh, there were already people, uh, volunteers, uh, who were here setting out signs in the parking lot. Uh, super, super cold. And I just want you to know, uh, we as a whole team, uh, your, your whole church fan, we're so grateful for you. Uh, those of you who, who uh, serve and who give and who are so faithful here, uh, who pray for Providence, uh, there's a lot of people this day, I mean, actually uh, hundreds, who have a role to play here at Providence, whether it's with little babies or whether it's on this stage with the worship team or the AV. There's a lot of people who serve that we never, ever see them. And I'm just so grateful we all are. And so, uh, and so if that's you, uh, thank you for uh, God is using you to do significant things in this body. Okay, So let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for your great love for us and thank you for the compassion that you show to us uh, through your son, uh, Christ Jesus. And we pray now, Lord, that as we open up your word, we thank you for Ephesians. We thank you, God, that you gave us this book. We thank you that you inspired Paul, even from a prison, to write this to a real church in a real city, facing real issues and problems just like us. And God, we thank you, God, that over these centuries, these generations, you have kept your word so that what we can read now in Ephesians chapter 4, or what we read here is is, is what you inspired Paul to write. And we're thankful for this gift. And pray now that you would speak through weakness, that you would bring glory to Christ alone in our time. I pray that you would speak through all of the great distractions in our life. We confess to you, God, our anxieties. All of us have something in our mind that we're worried about that, or that dominates our thoughts and has this last week and maybe even this morning. And I pray, Father, that in the midst of Um, of all that's happening in our life, that you would help us to have eyes to see the greatness of Jesus Christ and the amazing power that's found in the gospel. And so we look to you. uh, We need your help. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this fourth chapter of this book marks a significant change that sort of is um, uh, like what we've seen if we walk outside right now. You know, over the last several months, as we've been in various rooms and various venues, uh, there's a there's a there's a uh, there's a room being built, and you know that. And for several of the months, you drive in, and I would drive in week after week after week, and it kind of looked like not a whole lot was taking place. 
It was, but it really looked like this. It was a lot of foundation work. And the fact is, is unless you're right over the foundation, you can't see it. And even if you are, it's just not that cool, you know? I mean, it's, that's, not what, that's not our dream, right? That's, that, that's not what we're hoping for. It's, but it's critically important. In particular, that's built really, really well. And now, though, you drive in and you get to see something like this to where it starts to look like a building. And, of course, everything that you now see uh, and all the things that we spend a lot of our time thinking about even of our house, like the paint, the shutters, and the shingles, and things that are visible, things that are more appealing than the foundation, they all rest on that foundation. And however that foundation is built, whether it's built poorly or whether it's built really, really well, really strong, it will bear itself out in what you see with your eyes. And this is exactly what we find in Ephesians. That's how this book is built. The first three chapters speak of God's grace that's been unleashed to us. And so it's a lot of foundation work. It's talking about what's happening inside the heart, what God has done inside of us, where sometimes no human eyes, including our own, can actually see. But then what he does in the last three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6, is he highlights God's grace unleashed through us. Those visible demonstrations, those practices that you and I find a lot of, um, uh, well, it's very appealing. We love to talk about finances and marriage and parenting and, and, uh, and, and these things because that's where we live, that's where we move, that's where our anxieties normally rest, is with our children or with our money or with our husband or our wife or, or our friendships or what we're saying or, or what we're thinking. And what you need to understand is that the order here is critically important. You see, wherever cracks appear in chapters 4, 5, and 6 in our life, in those areas, you can be sure that there's a foundation problem in our life that's found in chapters 1, 2, and 3. So we can't separate from them at all. Everything is built on this foundation. And the order is critically important. The fact is, there's a lot of people that love to have somebody just say, why don't you just give me four steps to peace or three steps to be a patient person? Because we so clearly and desperately want to have the visible parts of our life being attractive to other people and to ourselves. It's, it's patient work to look at the foundation. But foundation work is really, really important that it happens first. I want you to maybe think about it like this. Let's just say that you're at a red light, you look out, the car creeps out, and suddenly they get broadsided, they just get smashed. And so you leave your car, you run over to check on the person, you look in and the person's bleeding out. They're so injured that they're going to die if they don't get blood. Now that's the worst time in the world, would it be, to sort of lean down Kind of put your arm and say, um, so let's talk about your parenting techniques. Or, or hey, let's, let's talk about your budget. Or, hey, let's talk about how you just treated your wife or your, or your kids. You, you wouldn't do that. Why? Because now all they need is blood. Without blood, they're going to die. Without blood, they can't do anything that you would want to talk about anyway. And this is precisely what we see in the gospel. It's exactly what we see in, in this amazing little book. That God... He looks, and when he comes over and he sees us in peril, he doesn't give us commands first. He gives us blood. He sent Jesus in order to rescue us. And after, and only after, his lifeblood, and that lifeblood is grace. In Christianity, the lifeblood 
of every believer is the grace of God. Once that lifeblood, that grace is literally flowing in us, then all of a sudden it begins to spill out. And once we're healthy enough, then he starts saying, okay, now let's talk about what you talk about and what you think about and how you treat people. And so what I want to urge you to look at here is that as we go through the next three chapters is that we do not separate our heart from the first three chapters. For wherever a crack appears in your life, you can be certain that the answer is not found at the later platter. It's found at the former. Go back to the grace of God in your life. And what Paul does is he connects these two with a bridge, and it's a one-word bridge, and it's the word therefore. It's the connector between the evidence of what God's done in chapters 1, 2, and 3 and the actions that he's going to now call us to live out in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And you can see it right here. Verse 1, he says, I, therefore, there's the bridge. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So what I want you to see here is a few things that God's grace motivates in our life. The first is that he God's grace it motivates us to live up to what we believe to live up to what we believe. It seems that every single day, somebody with authority or power or with, a, with an office, it seems that we find every single day, every single week, someone being exposed for failing to live up to that office or up to that trust. We see it in politics. We see people of authority and they They have an office, they have a role, they're dignified, and we assume and we trust them, and sometimes they let us down. You see it on with school teachers, how school teachers, not all, but a few, you see it to where these scandals take place, to where we've entrusted our children to them, and sometimes they take advantage, not all of them, but a few of them take advantage of those children. You see it right now, frequently, all over the world of celebrity, athletes, and broadcast journalists, of, of people that we trusted who are sitting in a seat of authority, a seat of dignity, and they don't live worthily of it. When we see these things, we cry out, Man, he lived unworthily of his office. And when we say that, what we're actually meaning is the nobility of the office should have constrained their heart. That nobility should have weighed more heavily on him or her so that he or she did not bring disgrace upon that office. And so what we're actually measuring is this. We're measuring the people against the worth of the office. In other words, we're not looking at the people and saying that the office wasn't worthy of them. And when they fail, we need to just give them a different office. What we're saying is we're looking at where we endow, where we place our trust, and we bestow it upon someone else. And we say that if you can't live worthily of this, we need someone else in that role who will be. Now, with that in mind, notice the first thing that he tells us to do. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk 
in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. And he's not asking us to deserve a place with God. He's asking us to recognize how much our place with God deserves. I have three boys. And so the big difference here would be for my boys to try to work for a place in the family and for my boys to work from a place in my family. There's a vast difference. And it's the difference between chapters 1, 2, and 3 and chapter 4, 5, and 6 that God's grace has to come to us and then suddenly we're motivated. This is what God's grace does. If God's grace is working in your life to save you, then what happens is it comes afterward to inspire you, to incline your heart to say, man, I want to live in such a way that even if it can't be perfectly, persistently, I want people to be able to look at my life and see a reflection of the dignity of the gospel, the nobility of Jesus Christ. And this is precisely what he's saying. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Worthy of the calling with which we've been called. So we have to ask the question, what is the calling that God has given to us that we don't want to disgrace? And so if you back up to chapter one, what we find is this, is that Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth. He lived a righteous life. He died on a cross and then he rose from the dead. And everyone who believes, chapter one, verse one, it says, becomes a saint. Chapter 1, verse 7, it says that we are forgiven of all of our sin and redeemed. Chapter 1, verse 10, says that we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit so that we can live and move in the security of assurance. Chapter 2, he tells us that we who were once dead in our sin, we've been made alive. That we who were once the objects of his wrath have now been made the targets, the, the actual targets of his kindness. And then he tells us why. It's a calling, a nobility to live up to it. He says, because in Christ Jesus... You were created to do good works. You were created not to be saved by those good works, but once your heart has been transformed by Christ, to live up to it. And then you get into chapter 3, and he really begins to anchor down on exactly what he's calling us to do as a church. First, he says he's built the church that when we trusted Christ, he adopted us into his family. Chapter 2, verse 17. And then you, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, yeah. And then you get to chapter 3, verse 10, and this is what he says. He says the reason that he's adopted us and the reason that he's built us is because he wants through the local church to display the wisdom of God to the ends of the earth, even in heaven and in hell. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing calling that he has given to us. This same writer, the same Paul, he wrote, well, he wrote lots of churches, but over in... um, Philippians chapter 1, verse uh, 27, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So providence, what I want you to see is there's no more noble thing. There's no more noble pursuit. There's no more noble life purpose than to live in a manner worthy of Christ. And so for application, let's esteem and then reflect the nobility of our calling. You see, I believe that if we could actually see with pure eyes the glory and the supremacy of Jesus Christ, and if we could see what Paul prayed for at the end of chapter 3, that the power of God and the love of God would literally collide like two perfect storms into the ultimate perfect storm within our heart. 
If we could see the power of the gospel on the earth, if we could see the supremacy of Jesus with unfiltered eyes, we would not ask the question, is Christ and the gospel worthy of my plans, my aspirations in my life? We would ask, is my life being lived worthily of such things, of Christ and the gospel? You see, I'm convinced that every one of us, we stumble. We know that. Every one of us is like a broken frame through which people have to look through sometimes shattered glass, broken glass, in order to see the picture of the gospel. And yet, isn't it possible? Wouldn't it be amazing? In fact, just imagine just for a moment what it would look like if every believer on earth aimed every single day, maybe not perfectly, but persistently, to reflect just like this little simple picture the one who gave his life for us. Imagine if it was our life purpose when we woke up in the morning to say, I may not be able to display it all, but today my life purpose is to help people see just a fraction, just a glimmer of the glory of Jesus Christ, his compassion or his mercy, his forbearance, his patience, his grace, his wisdom, his truthfulness, his integrity. You see, this is what Paul longs for. Now, When you look at chapter 4, verse 1, what you need to understand is that's sort of like the thesis for the rest of the book. What he's now going to do is he's going to look at all the different arenas of our practical life. And he's going to talk about in that arena, how do you live worthy of the gospel? How do you live worthy of the calling with which we've been called? And so he's going to talk about our tongue. He's going to talk about our relationships and our families and our parenting and and all kinds of things. And so it it would serve us well, though, to take note of what he writes first. Like if you were writing this letter, and if you made an appeal to say, all right, in all these areas I'm going to talk about, live worthy of the gospel, what would you talk about first? I might talk about like my family, maybe integrity. Let's start with integrity. If we would just, as believers, if we would live with integrity, all of us. We may start there. That's not where Paul starts. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to first go after unity. And and so the second thing I want you to see is that God's grace motivates us to pursue unity for the sake of peace. You see it in verse 3. He says, be eager, literally be energized, be zealous, be intentional, strain after. To do what? To maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. It's a fascinating words if you think about it, to maintain, to keep. I think he always starts there because unity, even though it's so precious, is very, very thin. It's like a Kleenex. It can tear very easily and quickly. It doesn't take much of a barb to break down unity within the body of Christ. It takes a little bit of impatience, a little moodiness, a little rudeness. Suddenly, we get our feelings hurt, and then it's on. And so he starts, and he says, strain to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, before we talk about how we do that, which is verse 2, I want to talk and show you why we do it. Why is this first? Why did Paul say, this is number one? We've got to tackle this before anything else. And we find the why in verses 4, 5, and 6. And there he says, well, it's because there's one body. There's one spirit, one hope, and one Lord, and one faith, and one baptism, and one God and Father over all. 
In other words, what he's saying is we cannot hope to reflect the oneness of Christianity while being divided. You and I, we, we cannot stand in front of the mirror that's labeled Christian or Christianity or the gospel of Jesus Christ and be broken up into factions around self-interest. That there's a reflection that Christ and everything about what we are here for today, there is a oneness quality to it. And so when there is a quality of division in our relationships or in our home or in our church family, we are not living worthily of the calling with which we've been called. And so Paul, you notice, he pleads for us to maintain unity. He says that first, but it's really interesting. Our text next week actually says in verse 13 that we are to attain the unity and in the knowledge of God. So he uses the word maintain, which assumes we have it and we need to keep it. But next week, he's going to say we need to attain it, which assumes we don't have it and we need to find it. So which one is it? Are we supposed to maintain something we have or are we supposed to attain something we don't have? Well, you wrote both of them, so it must be both. So how does this work? Well, if you go back to chapter 2, he talks about one of the big crisis points in this little church. And that is that throughout time, there's been historical hostility between Jews and Gentiles. They don't like each other. They've never liked each other. Still don't like each other. And yet, Jesus, when he rose from the dead, extended an invitation to all that whoever would believe upon him would be saved. And guess what happened? Both Jews and Gentiles, they start believing in Jesus. And so they start thinking, well, should we just form two churches? Like, we'll have, you know, first church of the Jews over here and first church of the Gentiles over here. And trying to figure out how do we, how do we live together when we don't like each other, but we like the one that we all like to worship. And so in chapter 2, what we looked at is that Jesus Christ, he changed things. In chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, he says, Now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that's the Gentiles, that's us, most of us, have been brought near to the blood of Christ. He says, For he's our peace who has made us both one. In other words, in one decisive act, Christ made Jews and Gentiles one. But this unity must be brought into full expression within the church, and it must be brought against all odds. Why against all odds? Well, somebody once said that peace is that beautiful moment when everyone has stopped to reload. Right? So everyone has a gun. Everyone's like, all right, and they, they like stop. Like, Wait a minute, I've kind of thrown all my ammunition out, so I need to go back to the closet. I'll be right back. We'll keep fighting. And they go back and all of a sudden there's just this, this quietness. It's like, wow, that's, that's very, very pleasant. You see, every single one of us, we don't come into these doors. We don't come. We don't behave as a church family in a vacuum. We've all lived in a culture where historical hostilities between people groups, between races, ethnicities, genders, they're all raging all the time. We swim in those waters and all of a sudden we come into these rooms and now we're a church family and we sing about our oneness. So is it to be maintained or attained? It's both. Jesus Christ, because what he has accomplished, 
It is a done deal. Positionally, we are one in Jesus Christ. But now we have to attain it in a culture that's constantly trying to pull us apart. We have to maintain it and attain it. We, we have to go after more of it and we have to keep what we have. You say, well, what hope is there of doing this? It's a great question. I think the only hope is the Holy Spirit. That's why he calls it the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You see, it's only the Holy Spirit that can break down the ice within our heart to actually believe common convictions and have common convictions about Jesus Christ. If you believe like I believe about Jesus Christ, that he died, that he rose from the dead, that he's the son of God, it's the Holy Spirit that convinced both of us. That's the middle ground. And similarly... It's the Holy Spirit that breaks down the ice within our heart that allows us to enjoy common care for one another. So if we love one another, we care for one another, then you can be certain that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives as a church family. And the Holy Spirit does all these things because Jesus loves peace. The Bible calls him the Prince of Peace. In his first sermon, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. He loves peace peace. So how do we pursue the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace? How does it happen? And that's where we get to verse two. Now, verse two, to really understand it well, it takes us a little bit of language. And the fact is, I just I already know that most of you just just tell me what it says and let's just move on. You don't care a whole lot about language, okay? Grammar is something you did a long time ago. So if I said the word participle, you might say God bless you, you know. I, but a participle is exactly what verse 2 is. There's actually four of them. And a participle is simply, it's an action word that helps us get the primary verb done. So th- this is what he's saying, okay? The verb, his passion, the first thing and he says, this is what we are after, is verse 3. It's to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now, how does that happen? If I said to you, grow in the Lord by praying reading the scriptures and, right, praying in the scriptures, that's the participle. That's how we grow. And he does the same thing here. In other words, you and I can't just go do unity. Unity is the fruit that takes place when we practice and pursue, verse 2, humility, patience, gentleness, and forbearance. And I broke them into twos intentionally. So if you want to take notes, the first application is this, is let's pursue humility and practice gentleness. Let's pursue humility and practice gentleness. You see that those are the first words in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness. You see, unity is dependent on humility. If you go to the symphony and you see a big orchestra, it only takes one person to go rogue to say, I got my own instrument. I'm going to play it when I want, how loud I want, any note I want, for the whole bus, just for all the wheels to fall off. It only takes one. And frankly, it's that way in your marriage, it's that way in your family, it's that way in your church. It only takes one. Unity demands humility, which is why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but think of yourself with sober judgment. And to me, when I think about pursuing this, this real humility, 
There's nothing that stirs humility more quickly within my heart than to meditate on the cross. You see, there is only one person who can look at the cross and assume themselves to be the hero, and it's not us. That's Jesus Christ. When we look at the cross, when I look at the cross, I don't look and think about my superiority or my supremacy. I look at my dependence and my need. But what's interesting is when we are humble, inevitably we treat people with gentleness. That's why I say pursue humility and practice gentleness. You see, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. So this is what I'm really getting after, okay? Gentleness is humility applied to relationships. If you live on an island all alone, you don't need to be gentle with anyone. Gentleness only needs another person. You can be humble. You can walk around the island. and You can, you can be very, very humble. But the fact is, is you don't even need to be gentle unless someone joins the island. And so humility is what's in the heart. And if it's in the heart, gentleness spills out in our relationships. You see, when we're humble, we see other people as valuable. We see other people as breakable. And so we're more gentle with them. And when we're more gentle with them, it maintains unity. So let me just ask you a question. Are you gentle with people? Are you gentle with your tongue? Everybody's fighting a great battle. Are you gentle with them? Are you rude with them? Gentleness is humility applied, and it needs to take place in our own relationships here. The second is let's pursue patience and practice forbearance. If you live on an island, you don't need to forbear. If someone joins the island, now you need to forbear. And the quality within the heart that must be there for us to forbear is patience. It has to be the quality that resides within in order for forbearance to spill out upon other people. And what's interesting is there's never been a patient person that's also not a humble person. Patience and humility, they're kind of like best friends. They never meet in an alley and say, I never expected to see you here. Humility walks... And patience always drafts. It's always a step behind. You see, the more we think of ourselves, the quicker we think we should be served. And so if you're ever in a line and you think, do these people not know that I'm in this line? Don't these people know how busy and important I am? What you need to understand is that everybody behind you and in front of you is thinking the same thing about you. Patience. It only comes through Humility. And what's interesting, though, is that when we're patient, we tend to forbear. Now, the word forbear, it simply means relational endurance. It means that when we gather together, and sometimes we're moody or impatient, irritable, irresponsible, maybe a little too spontaneous, maybe rude, selfish, forbearance is the perfect ointment to maintain unity. Relational endurance. I'm just going to stick with you. You're not lovely right now, but I'm going to love you anyway. Forbearance. And so providence, let's be humble so that we can endure with each other. And then the unity that Christ died to create will become real within this church. 
It will be maintained within this church, and we will not bring any disrepute upon the great God who called us to reflect him. Well, there's one more last thing, and it's very, very brief, actually. And that's this, is that God's grace motivates us to pursue unity for the sake of mission. What I'm trying to say here is this, is that there's more at stake in unity than utopia inside the walls of this church. There is more at stake than us just liking each other and treating each other and cooking meals for each other and offering each other a handshake or a hug. There's more at stake than just utopia within the church. And that is the glory of God to the ends of the earth. I believe that's why when Jesus was in the garden before his death and he was praying, he prayed John 17, 23. He was praying for us and he says, may they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you love me. You see what he's saying? He's saying, God, their unity is so important because the people in the world who don't know yet that I've died for them, they're going to be judging the credibility of my cross by the unity they see in my people. It becomes very, very important. You see, the unity, God's oneness is the foundation not only of our unity, but also our mission. I want you to think about it like this. If, if it said, you know what, man, there's many gods and there's many lords and many baptisms and there's many roads and many faiths and many saviors and many, 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 we wouldn't have to be unified. You just pick your path, you'll get there just fine. But when he says there is one Lord and there's one name by which men may be saved, there's one faith and there's one baptism and there's one, if there is one, then we have to be unified as a church family. And then we have to take a unified gospel, a unified passion, a unified care for each other, a unified convictions about who Christ is to people in order to help people see you actually need to be unified to this path as well because there's only one path. And what I've seen over and over and over again, you think this next year, we've planned 16 and soon to be, I think, 19 because so many people signed up to go on mission trips. If we ever get to the place as a church family to where we bypass verse 2 in our life, we're not pursuing humility, gentleness, and patience and forbearance, you can be certain that we will be so distracted by tensions within that we will stop going. It will slow down. We won't be given over to say, man, let's get this great gospel out because we'll be so mad at each other. And so I urge us as a church family, as we have for many, many, many years, application, let's tell of his love together. We have a mission that's been set before us. And this mission demands, it demands that we set aside our preferences, things that don't matter. We plead with God that we would share common convictions about who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. And we would share common care for one another as image bearers. All ethnicities, all races, everybody, young and old. We can do this because God's grace is being poured out to us. You know, it's amazing that God has offered us. We do this usually once a month. An amazing, amazing gift. A reminder for us of the unity that we have in Christ. And this little tool is called the Lord's Supper that we're going to do now. So for those that will be serving us, if you want to go ahead and stand up and head to the back, and you guys can get ready with the various elements. But 
But for those of us, as, as we wait, as we think about what we're actually doing here, I want you to think about this carefully. They're going to pass out, as many of you know, bread and cup, which is symbolic of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, don't ever take this unless you first examine your heart and confess your sin. But then he tells us why we take it. He tells us why we take it together, not at home by ourselves. You could, right? You could be like the first church of Brian Frost, and I just get up and I teach myself in the mirror, and then I give myself a, a self-hug, and, you know, I mean... There are people that do that. Well, maybe not that far, but you know what I mean. You could just go and, all right, I need some bread. I need some juice from the fridge. I'm going to take the Lord's Supper all by myself. I'm just going to do this, my own little thing. That's not what he said. He goes, you're a body, and you come together, and I've given you a tool to reinforce the unity that you should have and you can have. So as you confess your sins, sometimes even the sin against each other, which brings about reconciliation, you're going to be able to do two things. You're going to remember what I did through my son, Jesus Christ, on the cross in order to bring you together. And then second, you're going to proclaim with your lips and with your lives when you hold these things that I was in need of that and I'm believing in that. And so when you look to the right or left and you see people holding that little cup and that little piece of bread, without saying a single word verbally, you can actually say to each other, you know what, you are like me. We are together in this. We are unified in this, is that we have common convictions of Jesus and we care for one another. So I'm going to pray. And then as they're passing these things, I want to encourage you that if you've not confessed your sin, that you would take the time to do that. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness and your love to us. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to rescue us, for dying on a cross and for rising from the dead after living a righteous life in order to save us. We pray, Father, now that you would use this time to help us to remember, to stir humility in our heart as we think about the cross. We love you. We're grateful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.